Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 21 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, I'm not here. Where where are you, Steve? I'm in Rhode Island. I'm on vacation. Something something new and crazy and different. How did we do this? Um, we, we invented a time. We solved the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. We invented a Heisenberg compensator, and we traveled back through time. How appropriate of my recent reading list. So it seems to us like it's Thursday, May 25th, <laughs> last week. It does seem like that. And maybe what we did was we sat down to record an episode knowing that you'd be on vacation and we <gasps> didn't want listeners to go a week without having to put up with us. I mean, right. I mean, how could you possibly live without us? Um, of course, we're taking a bit of a gamble that nothing interesting in our world is going to happen. Between... Steve, we should, we should end this episode with some predictions about stuff that might happen. <laughs> between after, now and yeah, Monday? Between between Thursday afternoon and, and uh, the, you know, through Memorial Day. So there's, you know, there's this really bad... 1991 Steve Martin movie called L.A. Story, um, which is like a sort of it's it's yeah. how about mediocre Steve Martin best. movie, um, right? Where where one of the many sort of bits is he's a weatherman in L.A. right, and he pre-records the weather hits because the weather's always the same in L.A. It's like sun, <laughs> sun, 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 and it's pouring. So we so can we, do some version of this. Um, well, I mean, so we picked a leak, topic. Leak, 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 leak. We picked a topic that I think is somewhat insulated from this concern, right? We thought we would use this episode to do a super quick down and dirty primer on military commissions absolutely so so friends this is not a recap of the news since episode 20 in any way because we don't know i mean there was 30 seconds between episode 20 and episode 21 (laughs) so there 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 probably was no news we really needed something else to do that afternoon um what it is instead is a a attempt to kind of give listeners who are not steeped in the details of military commissions uh, a good introduction to the topic and a framing for stuff that has come up a little bit already in this podcast series and is bound to come up some more. Sure. So, you know, when we're talking about military commissions, let's be clear. I mean, the only military commissions that are really at play right now are the ongoing proceedings at Guantanamo, Bobby, um, which are all being conducted under the auspices of something called the Military Commissions Act of 2006, which we're going to refer to in the next 20, however many minutes, as the MCA. The MCA, the Military Commissions Act. There was one in 2006. Then there was one that uh, updated it in 2009, both the MCA. All right, so Bobby, let's go back to the beginning. So the beginning is right 9/11. Oh wait, can I introduce? Can I introduce a a rule of discussion about military commissions? Uh I like to think of as rule number one about talking about military commissions. The first rule of military commissions is there are no military commissions. Exactly. Nope. Yeah, it seemed like it'd be that way for a while, but it never happened. No. Rule number one for military commissions is, listeners. You, you got to keep separate in your mind the topic of military detention, right? Which also takes place at Guantanamo, but it's totally from, different. This is a different beast. Military detention. When you hear that phrase, we're talking about holding hold, people without trial under color of the law of armed conflict, detaining the enemy's right. forces for the duration of hostilities. Um, that's a non-criminal proceeding. It's it, that's not about trying to convict people and impose criminal sentences on them. That's something else. Military commissions is something that is done with a small subset of the population that is at Guantanamo, but the larger population, they're all there as military detainees. Only a few really are in the military commission. Right. Seven of the current 41 and eight before that. And the military commission topic is just a subpart of the larger topic of prosecution. Right. Okay. okay. So we're going to do this probably, Bobby, pretty quick and dirty. Yeah, this is meant to be just skimming the surface. So so I, I'm going to let me throw out a statement that I think you'll agree with, right? That on September 11th, right, the law that was settled with regard to military commissions was that it was permissible to have a military commission in three circumstances. 
All right, circumstance number one would be in an area un validly and lawfully under martial law, right, where the military commission was serving basically as the only court to hear anything. This is the only game in town theory. Right. You want to be able to prosecute people, you're going to need somebody, and the military's in charge. Right, and so if martial law is validly imposed, military commission is the only court. Um, variation number two, Bobby, is very much related to that but slightly different, which is belligerent occupation. So think U.S. and post-war Germany. Right where there is no functioning civilian government, not because there's martial law, but because there's military occupation. Those are occupation yeah. courts, and, and it's real, as you say, that's almost the same thing. Um, and and there's a 1952 Supreme Court case, Madsen versus Kinsella, that says cool. Um, yep. The third category, Bobby, is the controversial one. This category is often shorthanded as law of war military commissions. Um, at least as of 9-11, that's what the Supreme Court had embraced, right, especially in the Nazi saboteur case during World War II, ex parte Kieran. The court distinguishes the Civil War era case, ex parte Milligan, that had struck down military commissions and said, here they're permissible for two reasons. One, Congress has authorized them to try these Nazi saboteurs who stole into the country to try to commit acts of industrial sabotage. And two, the jury trial rights, Bobby, the rights that would otherwise have required a civilian trial, don't apply to, quote, offenses or offenders um, tri uh, tribal by military commission under the laws of war. All right, so I basically agree with that. Um, so the historical context, and I'll be real brief about this, military commissions are, you know, as old as the, the U.S. Army. Uh, there were variations or versions of a military commission, depending on how you conceptualize them. Going back to the Revolutionary War, they, they really, in their sort of modern guys, kind of pick up steam in the war with Mexico, when particularly General Scott's forces relied on them both as a means to be able to effectively use criminal prosecution against captured Mexican guerrilleros uh, who were fighting in in, the view, in a way that Scott felt was illegal uh, and would be captured and could be tried that way. But also, critically, uh, for some participants in his own forces, the non-U.S. Army participants, these volunteers who were, in many instances, committing outrages on the local population, and he couldn't, under the then-existing Articles of War, prosecute them in the court-martial system, so he used the military commissions to uh, to address his own. Okay, so, so if after 9-11, right, all that the U.S. government had wanted to do was to take enemy belligerents, be they U.S. citizens or not, and try them for international war crimes. Um, yeah. I think you and I agree that at least as a matter of law, right, there would have been no real objection to that. that no, the, th there is no real objection to that. You, you could fight over what, what are the procedural yep. floors, like how much rules of evidence. But insofar kind of as the assertion of jurisdiction is exactly. concerned. That's, that's clearly okay. Okay. So the big shift, the big problem that has arisen with the post nine eleven military commissions, Bobby, is the extent to which they've departed from these precedents, right? And so um, starting with the very first detainee who was charged before a post nine eleven commission, Salim Hamdan, who I represented for a while, right? Um, the government tried to charge and prosecute and indeed in some cases successfully prosecuted many, if not most of these detainees on charges that were not clearly recognized as international war crimes, including providing material support to terrorism, conspiracy, and solicitation. Right. So it might help some listeners to have a sense of what, what would the OK paradigm situation look like? Well, you have a, a member of the enemy's forces who uh, took a prisoner and then just decided to kill the prisoner, or a member of the enemy forces who decided to attack uh, a civilian yeah, target. Exactly. And, and you might say, well, that sounds like terrorism. But that's fine. But the point is, that would be the war crime of, of, of uh, attacking civilians or killing your prisoner, etc. And, and there's no debate that military commissions can prosecute those sorts of conventional war crimes. 
one of the things that was challenging about the original vision of post-9-11 military commissions was the decision to include on the list of prosecutable crimes some of the concepts from American federal criminal law that we've developed over recent years to provide the ability to prosecute people in situations involving terrorism where you're intervening on the front end, where you're not necessarily able to show this particular person's right. involved in a particular attack, but they provided material support to a designated group or they or they're conspiring with someone else. And, and as it turns out, like these are not concepts that are traditionally viewed as part of the list, the fairly well-settled list of war crimes. Um, indeed, and part of that, Bobby, is because some of these peculiarly U.S. criminal law concepts, right, are not necessarily echoed in the criminal codes of our of our sister countries overseas, right? So, well, although, although to be clear, I don't think it turns on whether no. I mean, everyone could have criminalized yes, yes, it as yes. a domestic criminal right. law matter. It's just the the difference. Of between, course, yeah. All right. So, so the the test case is Hamdan, right? And Hamdan is charged with conspiracy, um, and he brings a pretrial habeas petition challenging his military commission trial. This goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and in June 2006, the Supreme Court in Hamdan's case rules five to three, with Chief Justice Roberts recused because he had been on the panel in the D.C. Circuit in Hamdan's case, um, that the military commissions convened by President Bush were, Bobby, unlawful, not unconstitutional, right, for three principal reasons. Um, first, right, because they violated common Article Three of the Geneva Conventions, um, because the military commissions that were established at Guantanamo were not what the Geneva Conventions called regularly constituted right. courts, right? Second, because they departed from the procedural and evidentiary rules for courts martial without findings that were then required by statute about why those departures were necessary. And then third, and on this part, Justice Kennedy did not join. So this is actually four to three. Mm -hmm. um, the court says, and conspiracy is not recognized as a war crime. And so the statute Congress passed that authorizes these trials per our older precedents doesn't cover offenses that are not international war crimes. We think conspiracy is one of those. So is it fair to say, just to recap what we can think of as phase one of the post 9-11 military commissions, critical fact this is implicit what we said earlier, but we didn't actually say it. Congress didn't create a Military Commissions Act in 2001. It didn't do it until after the decision you just described. It was all done by stroke of the pen by the president as commander-in-chief, invoking the model that was used in World War II with those Nazi saboteurs. But let's be clear. I mean, the World War II model was statutory, right? So so part of why Kieran, the Nazi saboteur case, is controversial is because the court relied on what was then Article 15 of the Articles of War, what's today Article 21 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, 10 U.S.C. Section 821, as affirmative authorization for military commissions. Bobby, if you read that statute, it's not super affirmative. Yeah, I, I think it's clear enough. It seems to go out of its way to preserve what had traditionally and customarily been the military commission but authority, going back to General Scott, Kieran's controversy aside, I mean, I think, right, that's, that's beside the point here, yeah. because the key was what, what the Supreme Court held Congress to have authorized, right, only went so far and did not get all right. the way to what the Bush administration was trying to do. And so to your to your point about uh, the, the common Article III ruling, um, the, the the here's a critical point. The statute itself incorporated that by reference, which is how international law became relevant for the court's purpose there. And the idea was, since this is not something that's an existent court, but it's something that was sort of implicit in the statute that the president's now sort of reviving, that meant it wasn't regularly constituted, especially when you factor in something we've not yet mentioned, but which is very important here. It's not just that the list of chargeable offenses was potentially problematic, but the procedural safeguards yep. and the evidentiary rules in the original version, uh, going back to 2001 at the military commissions, uh, it was pretty skimpy process and skimpy rules of evidence that was all part of the picture of how this seemed like an irregular court. Exactly. All right. So then we get the reaction to Hamdan, which is the Military Commissions Act of 2006, 
Bobby, no question Congress provides. The statutory authorization the Supreme Court held was lacking in yep. Hamdan. Um, there's no question Congress creates regularly constituted military commissions. Indeed, Bobby, Congress goes further and creates a says, whole system. Yeah. Right? So you have the military commissions, and then you now have this intermediate appellate court, the CMCR, the Court of Military Commission Review, and you have appeals to the D.C. Circuit. Bobby, before 2005, when the Congress first started tweaking with this appellate idea, military commissions had never been appealable. Right? right. They'd been wholly outside the sort of normal process. Although I would say, as Hamdan itself illustrates, there, there was little likelihood they were going to keep that insulated. Well, quite. In but, but Congress yeah. makes an interesting choice, right, to put the commissions under the D.C. Circuit. Right, as opposed to under the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which mm -hmm. is the top court in our court martial system. In a later episode, Bobby, maybe we'll talk about some of the consequences of that choice, including my bizarre little Supreme Court case. Right, um, but for these purposes, right, what that means is now you've got a separate court system of military commissions. Yep, and, and of course it would ultimately culminate, if if possible, in the Supreme Court's review. Right. So this kind of mooted one set of problems. Yep. That's sort of the most esoteric, the irregularity problem. Yeah, which is really something that only the lawyers could really get focused on. Right. Um, it left in place the question of well, okay, but how about those procedural and evidentiary safeguards? How about that list of substantive crimes that could be charged? Is all this a compatible with the statute? Well, Congress tried to make it so by yep. putting it into the statute. Yep. Okay, well, what then? Is it compatible with Common Article 3? Is it compatible with the Constitution? Good. So two big things that the MCA does, right? As you say, first, it lists out all of the offenses. I think there are 28 in the first one. I think there are 32 mm -hmm. now, many of which, Bobby, are super conventional yeah. war crimes. All the ones you'd expect are there. Right. What's interesting is there Some are a few friends. others like material support and conspiracy and solicitation that are kind of the big three. Although Congress asserts that those aren't new. They're just, you know, codifying them. Um, but also Congress also codifies, Bobby, a bunch of procedural protections. Mm -hmm. that at least on paper, although I think we can quibble about whether it turns out to be true in practice, tries to bring the commissions more in line with courts martial. No question. The gap is the gap shrinks tremendously. This is sort of, you can think of this as commissions 2.0 in the post-9-11 era. Well, and, or, and, I mean, well, just for 5.0. For purposes of this podcast, <laughs> it's 2.0. And the idea is that what starts off as a system that looks real skimpy, is easily criticized, and yep. looks really far removed from not uh, both regular courts martial and federal civilian courts begins to converge quite a bit right. here. Ironically, Bobby, perhaps at the cost of why it was so valuable in the first place. Indeed. And this, if we leave you with nothing else, listeners, grasp that all these changes we're describing keep reducing the delta, the, the differential between the, the established either military or civilian prosecution systems and the military commission system. The idea was you're supposed to get something from for going this route, uh, a lot of efficiency and speed and ease of use and so forth. The more you remove the differences between the systems, the more you begin to ask, well, is this worth the candle? Right. It, what, what you're always still going to have is the symbolic uh, value of going this route, and that's a lot of, lot of what's driving the or, train now. Or the symbolic controversy. I mean, right? No, it runs both ways. Yeah. The, the symbolic value is good or bad. So, so let, me, let me try something. Let me jump ahead to where we are today, okay. and, then, and then maybe let's backtrack to sort of explain where the big questions have been. Good. So fast forward to today, Bobby. As of this moment, which listeners, let's just be clear, was, was last Thursday by the time you're hearing That's this. That's right. If we're at war by the time you're hearing this, we're not idiots. We, we're just back in time from Indeed. you. Our timeline hasn't caught up yet. The DeLorean, you know, we, we need more juice for the flux capacitor. 1.21 gigawatts. Isn't it gigawatts? Gigawatts? Is it, is it? I think it's gigawatts. And gigawatts. That's actually pretty easy to get. Yeah. They can go wherever they want to go. Well, 1988, it might not have been so easy. I think we're digressing. Yeah, indeed. Um, <laughs> so where, where are we today? So here we are, Bobby, 15 years into military commissions, um, 10 and a half, almost 11 into the MCA, and there have been eight convictions. 
um, right? Um, there are three cases ongoing involving seven defendants. Um, of those eight convictions, four have been overturned on appeal because of some of the jurisdictional problems we're about to describe. Appeals in two of the other four are still pending, right? Um, so not the world's most impressive track record. No, it's, there's no question. I mean, no one can deny it's utterly been gummed up over time in endless problems and revivals and reforms and so forth. The original idea, which was what they were thinking yeah. in fall 2001, that, look, this is a quick way to dispense justice. It hasn't worked. No, it, it hasn't paid out. And so, and so I guess this is, so Bobby said, if you lose, you nothing else. Let me, let me give you one other point to, to, to make sure everyone has. Reasonable minds are going to disagree about what the right answers to the legal questions are, right? But the argument that the commissions have actually been useful, right, as a policy matter, Bobby, to me is almost specious. Yeah, I, look, they've not been terribly useful. Um, okay, so what are the big questions? Um, let's bracket the procedural and evidentiary stuff because that, that's so sort of weedsy, right? The big jurisdictional questions, Bobby, have been twofold. Um, first is the one that we've talked about already, which is can the commissions go further than the Kieran precedent? Can they try offenses that are not international war crimes, like conspiracy, like material support like solicitation. Right. And can Congress add jaywalking if it wanted exactly. to? Exactly. Um, well, that's a great hypothetical. Where'd you get that? Ah, just that kind of guy. <laughs> um, so th the short version, right, is the D.C. Circuit hasn't definitively answered that question despite five years of trying. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing what we still don't know about this. You know, for, for, one, for one question lurking in the background here is, well, wait a minute. It's so some, most of these people, indeed, all these people at this point, uh, we're talking about non-citizens outside the United States. Uh, are they raising constitutional objections to this extension of jurisdiction? And if so, do the, are they protected by the aspect of the Constitution they're invoking? Steve, what aspect of the Constitution are they invoking in complaining about what they claim is an extension beyond the law of war boundaries on the list of chargeable offenses? So, I mean, there are a couple of different arguments, but I think the real principal objection is what's called the Article Three objection, right? Mm -hmm. And the Article Three objection basically goes like this. Um, the Supreme Court has been very careful to cabin the circumstances in which federal courts that are not staffed by Article Three judges, that is, judges appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, who have life tenure and salary protection. Right, right. Those are the um, good ones. Right, those are the good ones. But we love ones. the others too. However, there are right. issues. Um, so the court has been very careful to cabin the circumstances where you can have non-Article Three federal courts. And there are three categories. One is territorial courts. So you can have a non-Article Three federal court, for example, in Guam or in the okay. District of Columbia. One is courts to handle so-called public rights disputes, Bobby, so like the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims or the Tax Court or a lot of what administrative agencies do where it's monetary claims against the federal government and a few others, right? And then military courts. And the Article Three argument about military courts is that you can have courts martial for service members, right, which is based on the text of the Grand Jury mm -hmm. Indictment Clause of the Fifth Amendment, which accepts cases arising mm -hmm. in the land or naval forces. And you can have military commissions for what Kieran recognized, which is offenses committed by enemy belligerents against the laws of war. The Supreme Court has never said you can go further, right? And so the Article Three objection is that Kieran is not just permissive in identifying what law of war military commissions can do. It's exhaustive. And critical to what we're saying, what you're just describing, is that this is not so much a claim about the individual constitutional rights of these detainees, for they may or may not have any such rights. We still rights. don't know. It's a question of structure about the judicial power. That's right. And, and I would at least argue, although this is not necessarily a universally held position, that objections to judicial power sounding in Article 3 um, are not dependent upon whether the litigants at issue have particular constitutional rights or right. not. And, of course, this 
closely parallels, not accidentally, uh, Boumediene itself, Indeed. where habeas was treated just this way. So, so let's let's jump to what's been decided. So, the D.C. Circuit has now had five years of litigation coming out of the military commissions on this question, Bobby. Um, in what I think is generally called Al Balul One, the en banc D.C. Circuit unanimously threw out um, material support and solicitation charges where the conduct predated the Military Commissions Act on the ground that that violated the ex post facto clause, right? That that whatever the Congress could do going forward, right. Congress could not retroactively create right. new military commission tribal offenses. And the D.C. Circuit says it's completely clear to us that material support and solicitation were not prior to the MCA tribal by military commissions. Right. So that left open the possibility that now going forward from 2006 onwards, once there's legislation saying, hey, here are the list of charged crimes, right. chargeable crimes, now you can do it. Or right. maybe you can't. You need a different argument besides ex post facto. Like the Article 3 argument. All right. right. So, but one last point about that before we get to that. Um, in Abelul 1, the D.C. Circuit says this, even though it says Abelul forfeited his ex post facto claim by not raising it below. And so, Bobby, they reviewed under the highly deferential plain error standard. And mm -hmm. even under plain error review, the D.C. Circuit still unanimously says ex post facto violation right. for material support solicitation. Yeah. That's a pretty big slap in the face of the commissions, where both the trial courts and all of the judges on the CMCR who had sat on bonk in these cases yeah. had ruled to the contrary. Right, and saying like, wow, that was actually quite a clearly obvious error. Right. So, And it also really meant, so retrospectively, really cut into what uh, could be done with these commissions. Let's, let's underscore an important fact here. A lot of what's going on with some of the people that are identified as potential defendants for the commissions, in some cases, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, yeah, they're trying to link them to a particular attack on civilians, and so this is less of an issue. But in a few of the cases, the idea is, well, look, we can definitely prove this guy was in al-Qaeda. It's kind of hard to link him to a particular uh, violent act himself. That's right. He either promoted one or was generally supportive or generally aware of it. So can we charge him with conspiracy? Right. And that's why you need these additional charges. That's why so much weight is being placed I mean, on that, them. That's why, right, of the 11 proceedings to date, the eight convictions of the three pending trials, right, all but I think two of them have involved at least some combination, if not heavily relying upon these kinds of non-international yeah. war crimes. All right. Okay. So what so, happens with conspiracy? So in Abelua 1, the D.C. says, but it's not plain error, right? The ex post facto objection to conspiracy is not plainly erroneous because there's enough sort of support out there that like someone could have thought maybe that military commissions before the MCA could try conspiracy. Right. So conspiracy maybe on this short list of right. domestic crimes, maybe actually that had maybe some purchase in the law of war, although it's very contested. Right. Okay. So then they sent it back to the original panel to reach the Article 3 issue, right? Now that the ex post facto issue is off the table, the panel in Abelul 2 says the Article 3 issue is actually a huge problem and throws out the conspiracy conviction, applying de novo review over a dissent by Judge Henderson. The D.C. Circuit then goes on bonk again, now in Abelul 3, and fractures Bobby on the Article 3 objection to conspiracy. So there, when they do that. There are nine judges, right? Four, um, sorry, seven of the nine would have applied de novo review, right? And said under de novo review, we got to reach the Article 3 question. I think Judge Brett Kavanaugh says at one point, it's long past time to resolve the issue squarely and definitively. Um, and of those seven, they split four to three. Right, so uh, four to three on whether it's okay under Article Three to try conspiracy. Judge Kavanaugh writing for four judges says yes. Right, judges uh, Rogers, Tatel, and Pollard say no. Fine. I mean, that's right. that's so the on that model. Uh, conspiracy, okay, going forward, not okay, working backwards right. from 2006. But that's only four of the nine. Right, mm. there are two narrower concurrences. One Indeed. by Judge Millette, um, who would say who would rely on plain error. Right, who would 
make a case-specific holding about al-Balul that would have no relevance to other cases going forward. And one by Judge Wilkins, who actually wanted to argue that if you looked at the record in just the right way, al-Balul wasn't actually convicted of right. standalone conspiracy. He was convicted of an international war crime, the 9-11 attacks, where conspiracy was just the theory of liability. Right. And that's and no one else joined in that particular No. Approach. Well, so Judge Millett sort of nods at it, but half-heartedly. Yeah. So here's the problem, right? You've got four, seven of the nine judges reaching the Article Three issue de novo, but no majority. And so no clear answer from the D.C. Circuit. And, Bobby, now there's a cert petition. And, and to be clear, I think we both completely agree. Whatever the answer is, it's time we, to answer the question. An, no, it's, it's outrageous to be a decade and a half into this and not know the answer to whether this critically important charge can be charged in these cases. Every, listen, guys, everything, the utility of the commissions and the legitimacy of the commissions turns on the answer to whether they can try domestic offenses like conspiracy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little less sure on the legitimacy, but certainly the utility of it. Let me just finish the point. Yeah. If, if, the, if the answer is you can't, then the, then the reason to use it is, is severely undermined, except in cases where you've got people linked to particular violent right, acts. Right, which gets you the 9-11 attacks and just right. about nothing else. Right, but then when you've captured an al-Qaeda member and what you've got is they've joined the organization, you want material support and conspiracy, go clearly to court. you go to civilian right. court in that case. All right, so, so Bobby and I, I think we may disagree on what the actual answer is, but we agree that it's long past time for somebody, that's a hint, Supreme Court, that's right. to take this up and resolve it. Um, Bobby, really quickly on the other big pending case, right? So Abulul, there's a cert petition pending um, on, what, May 31st. The government's response is due, although I suspect they'll get an extension. There will be some amicus briefs. I'm writing one of them about why the Supreme Court needs to take this case for, you know, after all this time. But the same day, Bobby, is also when the government's response and amicus briefs are due in Al-Nashiri. Now, Nashiri, <laughs> right, a little different. Nashiri is charged um, for his role in two different attacks, the October 2000 bombing of the USS Cole, the 2002 bombing of the French tanker MV Limburg. Bobby, his argument is not that these aren't war crimes. His <laughs> argument is that they weren't war. Right. That it's especially the earlier one, right? That this is, maybe there is an armed conflict that begins 2001, but if I did something or I'm alleged to have done something before then, it was before the armed conflict. And the MCA, Bobby, specifically says, right, that the military commissions can only try offenses committed during hostilities, right. which the statute defines as any conflict, quote, subject to the laws of war, unquote. Which raises this this huge question, like, okay, so A, who gets to dis what what is the test for when you've got the armed conflict, and B, which institution in our system gets to make that decision? Is it even subject to judicial second guessing? Um, it's a great question. Um, the courts haven't answered it. So Nashiri, yep. like Kamdan, tried to bring a pretrial habeas petition, right? And his basic argument was, listen, this is a jurisdictional objection to a military trial. It does not depend upon what happens at trial. If I'm right, I have a right not to be tried. And oh, by the way, I shouldn't have to have the specter of a capital charge looming over me for like 10 years while you get your ducks in a row. Let's settle whether the court has jurisdiction now. Now, just a quick follow-up on something you said a moment ago. You said that the courts haven't answered this. We, we do have a, some parallel or some related things, including things you've written about, such as when does, who gets to decide when a war has ended, yep. right? So yep. can you share some thoughts well, so, on that? So, so there have been some interesting habeas petitions in the Guantanamo cases, right? So back to the other side of Guantanamo. Yes, yeah. Now, okay, we've pivoted to the land. military 
detention, right. not commissions. Um, about whether, thanks to statements by President Obama, right, the conflict with the Taliban right. in Afghanistan had wound down to such a degree. The incredibly ill-fated attempt to make it seem like that war was over while we continued to fight it. So, and here's the problem, right? I mean, the president, I, I think there's no question that President Obama said some things that probably in, in retrospect he should not have said. combat said. operations were over. Right. Um, so the question is, listen, if, we're, if the president's the authoritative spokesperson, if what he says is the word, then doesn't that go in both directions? Right. Except that then uh, the lawyers came in and say, well, yeah, he said that. And, he he, and he, of course, it. he meant it for, for political effect. Right. Uh, but that didn't mean we're actually stopping. There's still a war going on. And there's on. this remarkable decision by your friend and mine, Judge Royce Lambert, in the Al Rafi case. Hook um, Judge Lambert. Indeed. Where he basically says, listen, you know, when you've got a case like this where you're getting inconsistent statements from the political branches, it is up to the courts, right? I mean, we're going to obviously give weight and deference. Ah, uh, national security deference again. I but we're, but we're not, but it's not, it's not a political question, right? We're not precluded from considering the matter just because the president says one thing or the other. So in this context, Bobby, same thing, right? It's clearly a justiciable question. It's more about the timing. Should it be decided right. before Nashiri is put through the rigors of a military? commission or after. So a divided panel of the D.C. Circuit said after, um, right? In an opinion by Judge Griffith, the court ruled that um, federal courts in general should abstain from deciding challenges to military jurisdiction that don't go to the status of the detainee, but rather to the subject matter jurisdiction of the military court. Um, Judge Tatel dissented, um, and now the, there's a cert petition pending there. It's a very specific question because, Bobby, none of the other yeah. Guantanamo detainees are facing pre-9-11. Yeah. So that, that doesn't favor the court taking it. Do you think they will? Well, I think they might. If they So I think these cases go together, right? Because I think the abstention question, is it really true that federal courts have no business hearing pretrial challenges to the subject matter jurisdiction of a military mm -hmm. yeah. court? Yeah, that might get their interest. First of all, it's important in other military contexts like courts martial. Yep. Second, it actually has some implications for nerdy fed courts doctrines about appealability. Right. And this is also a context in where the usual tendency to say, well, let's kind of wait and see how the how the courts percolate and what other circuits might do, see what kind of split we get. Uh, that doesn't function here. So I still think that these are long odds, right? I think that, you know, if the court the court if it if it if the court's view is that it's only gonna take these cases where it absolutely positively has to, it can tell itself a story about why it doesn't have to take sure. these cases in this posture. And the DC Circuit has done yeoman work at making these cases at least to some degree cert proof. But, Bobby, the flip side is equally true. If they want these cases, they're there for the taking. Yeah. Now, am I right, just to kind of tie it in with a different line of cases we've mentioned briefly, the KSM and 9-11 cases, no matter how badly all these other things go for the government, that case could carry forward without much harm from however the, the other decisions you just described turn out. Oh, by design. I mean, yeah. so so um, about two years ago, maybe three years ago, while all of these Article Three challenges were starting to play out, um, the defendant in the KSM case moved and the government, Bobby, acquiesced in dismissing those yep. charges in the 9-11 trial right. that had so, any of this baggage. Which cleaned it up and left it focused, and we're seeing the wisdom of that now. So one possibility is the government's just going to take a beating in all these military commission appeals cases, losing the ability to do things like bringing conspiracy charges or what have you. But at the same time, all the public's going to really see is the actual forward progress on the KSM trial. And look, the commissions are hearing evidence in the 9-11 case. And you might get this sort of schizophrenic situation where we have uh, a real 
pistol shot into the utility of the military commissions at the same moment that they appear to be work, finally working really well in the highest profile case of them. I, I don't know about working really well. I mean, there's still a lot of if they get a conviction, and if, they, if they get a conviction of KSM yeah. and others, followed by what would definitely be a capital sentence. So when's that going to be? Yeah, who knows? But I would, you know, I think it's getting closer finally. I mean, it's getting closer in the sense that, like, yes, eternity is getting yeah, closer yeah. by the second. I mean, yeah. listen, if the 9/11 trial had been brought in New York as the attorney general had proposed at one point. Sure. Those guys would be dead by now. Yep, and, and maybe we shouldn't have invaded Iraq either. Lots of water under the bridge here. The fact is they're trying to push forward now with those I understand, KSM but trials. Listen, if, if at the end of the day we've went through this, by the time we're done, 25-year experiment on military commissions, and the value of the 25-year experiment was one conviction in the 9-11 trial and a whole bunch of reversed convictions in other cases, at the expense of, Bobby, by this point already, according to some estimates, a billion dollars, by that point, maybe two. Are you really going to tell me it was worth it? I didn't, I'm not talking about what's worth it. I'm talking about what the political context is going to be like. If, if within a year from now, they finally move to trial, yeah. and let's say um, by the time of the 2018 elections, because uh, you, know, you can yeah. imagine it getting done by then, frankly, if they've secured convictions. I can't actually, by the Well, I, I think it's possible. And if yeah. KSM and Ramzi bin al-Sheib and others are convicted and given death penalty sentences by then, the public is going to say, this works. And what I'm suggesting is this will be a really weird scenario where the political momentum will, will – it'll be a huge boost if they get that. And the, the narrative will be that, well, these were screwed up for years, but now we've got it working right. Look at what we got. Yeah. And at the same time, it may be the Supreme Court will have just issued a whole series of rulings that really limit the utility of the commissions, in fact. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's more likely is the court denies certain both of the current cases and we're left with the continuing shadow of uncertainty – yeah. Um, over all of these cases, which could also infect the 9-11 trial. Right, which, which is really, I'll kind of finish my thoughts with this observation. If they get, they have a pretty clear path to getting a conviction and a really good result from the government's perspective in the 9-11 trial, because it's not infected by any of these other problems. It's going to give it this big uh, boost to rely on it, a real sense, that's what you do, that's what you got to do. And if we don't have an answer on the type of questions that actually arise in in more common cases yep. where you don't have them tied to a particular attack, you're just trying to show conspiracy or material support, this is a real mess. It's no way to do to run a railroad. So, dear Supreme Court, let's go. Exactly. Time to step back on in. this we agree. All right. Um, so why don't we, we, we stop our, our little primer there, Bobby. This, yeah. this will help. predictions, by the way? What's going to happen uh, over Memorial Day weekend before this episode airs? I'm going to get some sleep. <laughs> I, I predict against that. I, I, I disagree. Uh, well, on that note, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be back in touch, folks, next week when we're both in the same place again. Until then, happy Memorial Day. Yep, and uh, have, have a good, uh, safe Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.